Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Jason Horsley for the New Books Network. I'm talking to Alison Miller, the author of Healing the Unimaginable, Treating Ritual Abuse and Mind Control, and Becoming Yourself, Overcoming Mind Control and Ritual Abuse, both titles from Karnak Books. Okay, so let's start with um, how it was that you first uh, found out about ritual abuse. Like, if you could tell us a little bit about um, what you were doing at the time and how you gradually came to be aware of this phenomenon, I think that would probably be a good introduction because many listeners aren't familiar with the subject except perhaps as something that's actually been discredited, as you all know. So let's start with that. Well, around 1990, I was working at uh, our local mental health center, and I was in charge of the child and youth program there. And one of the main things I did was develop what I felt were better parent education programs. So I spent my time dealing with dysfunctional families and uh, teaching parent education because I thought there was a lot that stuff that should be taught to parents, like about how families function that could really help them, rather than having a psychologist sitting in one office, um, you know, with people one by one telling them they were doing it wrong. So I developed these groups. I was all excited about that. That, that was a lot of the nature of my work. And then I got a few clients who were pretty different. The first one was a young, young mother. I had met her years before. Um, just out in the world, but uh, she was coming in and she became my client around parenting her two-year-old, but she was really rather strange. Mm -hmm. And then, well, that was the first one. And she told me that she had an inner child. And uh, I had heard of inner children. I figured it was one of these fads from California and that uh, I didn't personally have any inner children, but she did, and so she talked about this. And then one day her inner child stole a wheelchair from the hospital next door to where I worked, wheeled it all around the premises, and when she was confronted, she told her told them that she was my employee. So I took a little, a larger look at this inner child, and I discovered this person really had different parts within her that uh, behaved differently and separately. That was my introduction to dissociative disorders. I didn't yet know that she was a victim of ritual abuse, but I did learn um, that she had a dissociative disorder, what they then called multiple personality disorder, and uh, um, that it, it did actually exist. So I went off to learn about that, read what I could, uh, went to a workshop at the Justice Institute in Vancouver, 
and at the Justice Institute, some people came up from California, yes, California, and educated us about dissociative disorders and also said that a large percentage of people like this were victims of something called ritual abuse, which I hadn't heard of. Mm -hmm. So I listened to that and uh, continued with this client. Then I got another client who said he was a victim of ritual abuse, a young man, and uh, basically began to learn from my clients. Mm. And what were your first impressions then of the accounts that you were hearing from your clients? Well, initially I wasn't hearing a lot of accounts and I didn't quite understand what some of it was because they didn't launch right into talking about ritual abuse. The young woman started talking about the different parts within her and she started to get odd memories like being raped by a person in a Santa Claus suit. Um, and the young man said, um, I actually picked him up. He didn't belong to my team. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic, and he phoned in one day when I was manning the phones for the mental health center and said that he was having flashbacks about ritual abuse. And so I went through a flashback with him on the phone, and it was of his stepfather um, immersing his head in water so that he couldn't breathe. And I was thinking, why is this ritual abuse? Mm. But it began with those kinds of things because people who are victims of this don't come in and tell you um, initially what's happened. You have to develop a relationship with them and sort of begin to know their inner parts because that's who holds the memories. The the everyday life person doesn't. Right. And were you reporting your findings to a, another therapist, the supervisor, during this period? No, I was the supervisor. How? Um, and... Uh, at the same time, two other people on my team, we had a small team, just five of us, two other members of my team also um, began with clients who had dissociative disorders. So we would talk with one another about it, trying to understand what was going on. Um, at, at one point I spoke then with the young woman um, client of mine and said, I told her that I was seeing another person who was multiple. And she said, oh, really? And um, I told her it was the, this young man. Um, at this point, we didn't have such, it was back in 1990, we didn't have a whole lot of strict rules about not talking about certain things, one mm. client to another, mm. I guess. And uh, um, I told her who it was, and she said, oh, I knew him in high school, yeah. And uh, he was the same age as her. And then I said, but he's talking about ritual abuse. I'm so thankful that you don't have anything like that to deal with. And she said, oh, I wouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. And then we were kind of off to the races, and I discovered that not only had they both been ritually abused, they'd been ritually abused together as part of the local satanic cult, and they were still involved in it. And boy, that was a shock. Mm -hmm. Wasn't this roughly the same period that the false memory syndrome was being founded? That was beginning to happen, and I didn't even know anything about it. I joined the International Society for the Study of Dissociation, as it was then, went to their conferences. The first conference I went to, everybody was talking about ritual abuse, and I uh, um, connected with some other people who had more experience with it, or a little bit more experience anyway. By the time I went to the second or third conference, nobody talked about it anymore and there were no presentations on it because that's when the false memory people hit and started to sue the therapists. And a lot of the beginning leaders in that field were kind of knocked out with lawsuits. Right. right. So I decided I'd better 
stay quiet and just learn what I could while I continued to work with my clients. And so in the period, how long a period are we talking about? Because you're retired now, yeah? So how long a period, um, for how long a period were you working with clients? And in the end, how many clients roughly have you worked with who've been... Uh, Depends what you mean by worked with. I had these first two and I acquired two more who were what I consider my first four who were all in the same satanic cult. And so I learned that it was real because uh, one of them would tell me something that had recently happened and I wouldn't disclose it to the others and then someone else would tell me the same thing. Right. So I learned a whole lot from these first four. And since and at that point, um, I was quite well known in the community because of my parenting work and other therapists began. I, I started up a part-time private practice and immediately other therapists began sending me clients who were dissociative or who had ritual abuse backgrounds and uh, I started working with more and more. I would say in terms of doing really in-depth work, like for a, you know, a couple of years anyway, I've had about a dozen. In terms of seeing people who uh, reported something probably closer to getting up towards 100, but a lot of people don't work through these things systematically. It takes a lot of courage to really do the work. Mm. And based on these last going on 30 years, I guess, of experience with this, what's your impression of how widespread this is as a phenomenon? And, and is, it, um, is it a fragmented phenomenon or is it a... Um, is it an organized worldwide thing, do you, do you feel? You know, I used to think it was a fragmented thing. That's what I believed for a long time. I thought there were different groups in different areas. There are different, different groups with different titles in different areas, but it appears that they're all connected. They have large gatherings, and it's pretty well everywhere in the developed world. I can't speak for the uh, less developed world, I would hope. Uh, it's not so much there, but it's certainly rampant throughout Europe, Australia, and North America. Mm. Okay, so before before going into that, because neither say it's a huge subject, um, let's just talk about how you came to write your two books. If you could t describe the books and, and the process by which you came to write them. Okay. Well, when I was working with the first group of clients, uh, one of the it was a young woman, she was actually still a teenager who saw me, and she did her work very thoroughly, and she wanted to write a book. And so we came up with this idea that we would write a book together. She would tell her story, it was going to be called Princess of Darkness, and we would intersperse chapters about her story with chapters in my book where as a therapist and psychologist, I kind of explained things bit by bit. And so I had some ideas about what I would want to put in my chapters. This was back around 1994. And then that young woman um, left town, left seeing me and left town. She basically finished her therapy, but she uh, didn't continue doing any work. We didn't do the book. I think what happened is she made some kind of a deal with the cult that they would leave her alone if she didn't write the book, didn't see me, and uh, didn't... Uh, um, Talk, didn't talk to the police anymore because she had talked with the police about some local stuff that she knew. Um, and so I, we never wrote that book. I put it on the back burner. And time went by. I was working with more and more clients with this kind of history. 
and uh, was learning more and more, and I kept waiting for the book that would explain how to do this work, and it never appeared. And finally, I got tired of this, and I sat down and thought, I'm just going to write it. Mm. So I wrote it, and that's the book that's called Healing the Unimaginable, Treating Ritual Abuse and Mind Control. It's for therapists. Mm. And when I wrote that, I invited some survivors and... uh, I think a couple of therapists to contribute and I put lots of stuff in that book and I wrote at the beginning this is not for survivors this is just for therapists Um, and I did that because I did not want survivors to believe that they had got their memories from reading my book I heard that lots of survivors were angry about that they thought it was up to them whether or not they could should read that stuff So when I'd finished that and then I heard the feedback that survivors really didn't like my having put that in the book, I thought, fine, I'll write a version for you. So I wrote a version for them, which contains essentially the same information plus a lot more stuff about handling daily life and relating to family and things like this, which is specifically for survivors of ritual abuse and mind control. And that book is called Becoming Yourself, Overcoming Mind Control and Ritual Abuse. Yeah, and these books, they're, um, they're very much handbooks. I mean, they're practical aids for people who are dealing with these realities, either directly or indirectly as therapists. They're very different from a lot of other books on the market, which I've read, which are first-person testimonies and uh, more, I guess, more sensationalist. There's quite a few sensationalist books out there. So, I mean, one, one thing that's very clear to me from having read some of these books is that they're not they're not going to appeal to anybody who who doesn't have a direct experience of these realities and and want to be uh, resolving it in some way they're not for entertainment in any shape or form whereas a lot of that other stuff I think can be um, consumed as entertainment albeit very dark kind so I'm curious about how how well the books are doing in that context because it seems that that would give an indication of just how widespread this is I believe my books have been on Karnak's bestseller list ever since they came out. Mm. I think they're still on there. Karnak is the publisher in England. It's a respected psychoanalytic publisher. And, um, yeah, they've sold pretty well because there's nothing else like that. And that's why I wrote them. I thought there was one book called... um, Oh, I can't remember the title of it now. There was one book for survivors which was reasonably good, but what it didn't go into is the extent of the mind control um, that's so important in these groups. Mm. And, uh, yeah, Christine Oksana, that's the author, I can't remember her name. And there there wasn't a handbook for therapists in dealing with this, and so... I guess I'm filling a, I was filling a gap that nobody else has put anything in yet. Right. And uh, presumably you've been in touch with quite a few other therapists who have discovered this reality through dealing with clients and then found your work helpful. Yes, I've been involved in online groups for a long time. So can you give us a, an idea, if it's possible, of of how prevalent this is? in terms? Because, you know, for, for most people, like my sister's a therapist, um, so most people even working in the therapeutic community this isn't a, a reality that comes to their attention well people don't just walk into therapy well that young man did but everybody thought he was crazy hmm. Maybe, and I think they made him crazy in order that nobody would believe him hmm. because 
what you need to understand is this is organized crime, and it's psychologically sophisticated organized crime. They abuse children in an organized way, and what they do is they um, essentially split the circuitry in the brain through torture when the person is just an infant, and then um, they give assignments and jobs to the different parts of the person. And one of the main things is security, that no, the per, any survivor must never, ever talk about it, because if they talk about it, they will be killed, or someone they love will be killed, or their pet will be killed, or some other child that they don't even know is going to be killed if they talk. And so they're just terrified to talk about this. So people don't walk into therapist's office and talk about this. Mm-hmm. And if, uh, if they do, as you said, they, they often may find that they're not believed. That's right. So, what what is your impression in terms of how, how common this is? I don't know. It's been estimated that maybe 1% of the population has dissociative identity disorder, um, which is an, a, a visibly split mind. But most of the ritual abusing groups um, split the mind, but they they set the person up so that they don't appear to have other parts, like the other parts aren't allowed to come out in everyday life. Yeah. And so there's probably at least as many who um, who don't appear dissociative, but they are. Yeah. And so that would make it maybe 2% of the population. It's pretty common. Yeah. Yeah. Way more common than I would ever have thought. Mm. And way more organized on a national and international basis than I would have thought, too. And how uh, instrumental would you say the false memory syndrome has been in effectively discrediting these accounts? Well, it did pretty well initially because it just took people by a great deal of surprise. But then researchers got in there and said, okay, let's find out about these things. Let's find out about, you know, for example, if a person has has memories of sexual abuse that they always remembered versus memories that... Um, they didn't remember, but they found out later, um, which turns out, uh, does it turn out that the ones that came up later that they had forgotten and then remembered are, are less likely to be true than the ones that they've always remembered? And apparently, no. Hmm. It doesn't matter whether you've always remembered it or whether um, you just suddenly remembered it. It's, it has about the same likely, likelihood of being true. I can't really quote those studies, because I, I've read them, but I, that's not my specialty. My specialty is understanding how it works and understanding how to treat it. Hmm. So when we get into these questions about false memory and all that stuff, I just think that it, the false memory syndrome and all of that is, is a very um, deliberate, organized attempt to convince people via the media um, that uh, people remembering such things, it couldn't possibly be true. Yeah, and it is, there is quite a bit of evidence of the involvement. I mean, the people who created the false memory syndrome seem to be involved to one degree or another in advocating pedophilia or directly involved in child abuse themselves. I think that was Ralph Underwager was one of the people on their original board, and then somebody found an article he'd written for a Dutch Dutch pedophile magazine where he was suggesting that pedophilia should be a valid form of sexuality. Mm. Tell that to the child it happens to, eh? Yeah, and also Jennifer Frey's parents, no? 
Yes, that's right. Jennifer Freight's parents started the false memory syndrome. There's a lot of perpetrators within that group. Yeah. But what they did was they were very clever at manipulating the media. Well, yeah, that's why I brought it up, even if it's not your area of expertise by any means, but because it's so, they've been so effective that to this day, and it's actually becoming, seems like they're um, uh, doubling down or what have you. I mean, the, 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 it's, it's gaining momentum again now in terms of that um, idea that memories, particularly of sexual abuse, uh, are often proven to be false, um, even though it was never proved itself. Uh, it, has, it was never effectively disproved, or at least if it was, then you know that was ignored. But it's it's become. I mean, I encounter it all the time now, and it's not specifically around sexual abuse either. But it will it will come up in that context. But there seems to be an even larger agenda now about showing how false memories are created. What, you know, Elizabeth Loftus, who I don't know if she's directly involved with the false memory syndrome, but she certainly seems to be. Uh, I have some new British young psychologist now who does research on memory. and Yeah, but, yeah, basically I see them as having another big push, and they go for the popular magazines um, and the media and the Internet to to discredit um, people who have suffered terribly in their childhood. And you have to look at who's behind this, you know. If we have organized crime, we know that, for example, that the Internet is full of child pornography. Well, who makes that child pornography, and where are the children that it happened to? Yeah. Well, these are them. Yeah. Um, calling it all ritual abuse, I prefer to call it all mind control, because um, rich, the ritualistic, the people out there doing ceremonies in the woods are only a part of it. The, the pedophile networks uh, are connected with, yes, Satanists and uh, strange religionists who do those rituals, but they're also, um, they make a lot of money from terrible kinds of pornography and terrible kinds of torture and harming of children, and uh, part of that is the mind control where they terrify the children so that they can't speak and they can't remember things. Yeah. Are you familiar with Laurie Handrahan's work? Laurie Handrahan, she's a researcher in the U.S., particularly into, specifically into child pornography, and she's, she's uncovered how the U.S. is the largest uh, producer of child pornography in the world, and that's a massive like, billion-dollar industry. And, the, the, you know, I mean, the number of people are participating in it, um, either as victims, as perpetrators, or consumers... Um, is astronomical, as in, I mean, anyone you uh, you would know, people in your neighbourhood, wherever you lived, who are involved in it. That's how widespread she's discovered it to be. Wow, I'd like to read her. And you know, yeah, it it is that common, and we know this happens. Well, it has to have happened to somebody. And the people that are coming up and talking about these kinds of memories are the people that the child pornography was made from. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned mind control. Well, I mean, because that's another subject which, of course, is um, uh, problematic. Let's say I, I would say largely to the extent that it's been sensationalized more than it's really been discredited. Um, so you have, I mean, there's three areas, uh, or there's three angles from which what you're, you've discovered and what you work with have worked with um, can be 
seen. One is the ritual abuse angle, the actual crimes that are being committed. The other is mind control, which is the the, the purpose, partly, of, of the crimes that are committed. And then the third is dissociative identity disorder. Now, now all three of those are somewhat, I could say, liminal, because that's a word I like, but in the sense that they're, they're not I can't say they're not proven because they are. This is the, the strange thing about it. One can look, do a little research just for a couple of hours and find that there's, there's documented cases and trials of ritual abuse. It's not a rumor, it's a reality. Same with dissociative identity disorder, same with mind control, MKUltra. But somehow they're all still in this sort of twilight realm where, where they're mostly talked about in the context of conspiracy theory and, and a lot of sort of wild speculation gets mixed up with them. Obviously, that's a problem that uh, you confront in terms of uh, communicating this to people. H- how do you approach that in terms of overcoming the just innate resistance that people have to these, these subjects? Well, the books I've written are for the people who want to learn about it, which is the survivors and the therapists. So I'm not necessarily writing for the general public. But I understand the innate resistance um, because I was pretty resistant. Because my worldview, I grew up in a pretty functional family with two decent, intelligent, thoughtful, caring parents. And I wanted to believe the world was a good place. You know, most of the people I had met, the families I had met through my parents, the teachers I had in school were decent, well-meaning people. I thought I had some difficulties, but they were nothing in comparison to this. And when I ran into this, it it just blew my mind. It was like so horrible, the kind of things that happened to these children. Hmm. You know, that, that young man who first came to see me started blurting out his memories, and he was this um, his front person, that is the part of him that sort of mostly was out in the world, was was quite a uh, devout Christian. And he'd talk about these things, and I'd think, he suffered more than Jesus did. And it just completely shocked me. It, it shocks you, it changes your worldview to know that this stuff happens. And a lot of people simply don't want to know. Hmm. I, I had a situation recently, I moved recently, and I moved into a sort of housing complex, and there's some nice retired people there and they they had a sort of welcome party for me and they sat around the room and they all talked about each other and somehow it came out that I work with survivors of extreme child abuse and people just kind of stared at me and one of them said but isn't that so unpleasant mm-hmm. <laughs> what of course it's unpleasant and I just sort of said well somebody's got to do it mm-hmm. but the attitude was uh, we don't want to deal with this. And then even the therapists I work with, and I work with a team of really great therapists who work with other things, but they're, they just find this stuff so overwhelming to their worldview, so horrific that they feel like they couldn't handle it, so they don't take it on. Right. It's kind of sad. And a lot of people are afraid, too, if this is real, if I start finding out about it, if I start working with it as a therapist, if I start helping someone who's been through this, what will happen to me? Because these groups are very nasty, like the Mafia. Yeah, well, it strikes me that there's a kind of compartmentalization of awareness that even if we haven't been traumatized, we've learned to do it in terms of like double saying we can see the evidence of something but then we can forget it the next minute because of as what you're saying is that the whole edifice of uh, our 
understanding about the world comes under threat, then we will um, we will censor our own awareness. No, I think that's right. And at the same time, we have a huge increase of violence in the media, and we have these kinds of things showing up in movies and in TV shows, but they, they show up in very strange, exaggerating forms, as though they're all mythology and imagination. So it's all changed. Yeah, and they're also glorified, of course, because it's the, the MK Ultra, Jason Bourne kind of thing is all about developing superpowers, really. Well, that's right. And Jason Bourne, I mean, some of that is accurate, that there can be a person like him who has something done so that he doesn't remember things that he has done or mm. other parts of him have done. But the thing is, you can't really get an adult who volunteers to um, work for his country and so they do some mind control on him and then he goes out into the world and does noble things without being aware of it. The reality is to get someone who can do that, who can be that split, you have to start with a baby. Right. And that's the hidden thing with MKUltra. Some documents have been released about stuff that was done on adults, but not about the stuff that was done on kids. Yeah. People would just really revolt against that. Yeah, there's been a little bit, obviously, in Canada with you and Cameron and, and his working with babies, but it was uh, relatively benign in terms of just dosing babies with LSD, which obviously seems horrific enough, but... But you know, you and I have had two clients who were abused when young by you and Cameron. Yeah. Yeah, on the other side of the country. Right. He did much worse things with babies than that. Yeah. His, him and his team. Yeah. So, um, we're talking about um, okay. So, the the abuse uh, is a method for mind control, and the consequence of the mind control, one of them is dissociative identity disorder. I wonder if you could talk about both your experience and your understanding of that and to whatever extent you've been able to work out the origins of these methods of actually using um, sexual trauma on children to... to Historically, where does it come from? Yeah, although I don't expect you to trace it back to Sumeria or anything like that, but at least in terms of this past century and MKUltra, or if it predates that, and what, what your impressions are about that. Back. Some of, the, some of these groups have existed for a long time. Um, certainly there have been satanic cults and other occult religions which have used trauma to children, um, I think they, way back when they believed they were actually inserting demons into kids. Mm. Um, and the experience would be so terrifying that the child would split off a part that would believe itself to be a demon. And that is still going on. But things really um, got better, more organized when the Nazis came along. And they, they, uh, the, a lot of the leading Nazis were Luciferians in their beliefs. And they, uh, but they experimented in the camps on uh, people trying to uh, find out how mind control worked, how the mind could be split. And then those same Nazi scientists that worked in Auschwitz and so on were imported to the U.S. Mengele specifically was there. And uh, they continued those experiments on children provided to them in the U.S. Um, MKUltra is somewhat later, but uh, it was, there was this deal between the Nazis who were imported and the American government. And so 
um, that they would sort of teach the, the Americans how to do this. And, uh, yeah, hmm. things went from there. And Caltro, only certain parts of it have, have become publicly known. There's other parts that have never been publicly known. But um, when you see survivors of it, then you see there's more to it. Yeah, just as a point of personal curiosity, do you, are you aware of any overlap between this MK Ultra and the CIA Nazi Alliance and the space program and NASA? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, basically, I've had a client who some of some of the things that were done to her occurred in places where the rockets were. So there must be a connection there, but I, I don't really know a lot of details about what goes on there. The, the space program, as far as I know, is quite legit, but things did happen in the, those locations. Uh, would it have been Texas? No. Because mm. uh, it says personal curiosity, I'm obviously writing about Willie Strieber, it's relevant, but also somebody I know, and he, he grew up around NASA base. A lot of things on military bases, even the local military base here in Victoria, one of the clients, uh, she actually wrote about it. Um, Trish Fotheringham actually wrote about uh, the local military base here and being taken there and experimented on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but talk a little bit more, if you can, about the um, the way in which the, the trauma is applied in order to rewire the brain and create dissociative identity disorder? What, what's your understanding of that process? The first thing that they need in order to uh, create a mind-controlled slave, as it were, is they need an unbonded child, a child who doesn't have a secure bond with the mother. So in a cult family, the child will not be permitted to bond with its mother. The mother um, will, it will be starved, it will be left alone hungry and exhausted and emaciated, and mother will walk by and not even look at it, this kind of thing. There's lots of stuff done to make sure it doesn't have a bond. It actually starts in the womb where they'll give the mother electroshock to the belly so that um, in order to break the bond with the child. Um, they do not allow the kid to have a secure bond. Mm. So that's the beginning. So you have a child who has nobody there for them. And a lot of the work, like, for example, of Daniel, um, Daniel, what's his name, the one who wrote, I think it's Siegel, who wrote The Developing Mind, and uh, talks about how the child sort of is, a, um, the, the baby is maybe a bunch of sort of separate emotional ego states, but it's that wonderful bond with a caring mother that knits them all together and allows this child to be secure in the world is that connection with another human being. So mind control families don't want that to happen. They want the child to um, remain as separate ego states and they actually want to create um, big barriers between the different ways of being that the child has. And so then they start to apply various kinds of torture to deliberately split off um, new parts of the child. What I, what I see the torture doing is that it becomes so extreme and so it's like the brain shuts off the circuit that was there and opens a new circuit and then they, they immediately see that that has happened. They will give that new circuit, which is like a completely ignorant infant, um, some kind of a signal that indicates uh, that 
you know, that it rec will recognize later and they uh, will work with that particular part and bring it out later and train it. Um, yeah, it's pretty awful. So they, in the Kabbalah-based groups, for example, they split off 13 original infants, and each one of those is used to split off a whole chain of different parts. If you look at it just in terms of brain wiring, it's essentially that they, uh, they separate the circuitry within the brain, hmm. and then they reconnect it whatever ways that they want it to be connected. So, for example, for sado, for masochistic, things, um, they will have a part whose sole function is to hold pain, and they'll have another part whose sole, whole sole function is to have sexual enjoyment, and they will connect those two together so that there's one that enjoys it when the pain is happening. And when they do that, they're actually, uh, um, they're actually training that person for later in life that they will engage in those masochistic activities. And, uh, yeah, they, they train all these kids in these sexual skills by essentially what they do with the brain circuitry. It's pretty awful. Mm. And that's just the sexual part. They can also produce assassins, um, spies, various kinds of things, depending on which group it is and what function they want the person to have. I was wondering, when you're talking earlier about that, interfering with the, the bond with the mother, um, if that might include drugs, because... My mother was was advised to take drugs for birth um, to induce the birth. She had uh, my birth was induced because the, the doctors recommended that she take drugs, and so um, I mean I've I've deduced from that uh, that it was an extremely uncomfortable experience for me being born in terms of being uh, out of sync with with my mother's biological rhythms right right from the inception yeah that's quite possible I'm, I'm i'm not sure i haven't run into that as some specific thing that people have talked about but um for me to know about that and the one the clients i have had with this kind of background who have given birth haven't talked about uh, that being done they've talked about the electric shock thing but not not specifically drugs to induce labor. Mm. I d I'm not sure whether those drugs would actually uh, do anything. There's various kinds of drugs that can be given to make it much more difficult for the mother to connect, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a spectrum, isn't it? Because even when we talk about just the, the, the normal uh, birthing procedures, and even to this day, the infants that are taken away from their mothers immediately after being born, that's still routine procedure in many hospitals. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and, you know, what, what, what are being done to those infants while they're being taken away is, is not clear either, necessarily. No, and the mothers are also supposed to um, taught to abuse the infants. They're what, sorry? The mothers are taught to abuse the infants in these cult groups. Um, yeah, they, they have to sexually abuse them. There's a thing that they do preparing children for sexual abuse by men, and they have little dildos that they insert into the child to widen the orifices. And the mothers are taught that if you do this, and they sort of go in increasing sizes, they come in a little kit. And the mothers are taught that if you do this, then it'll be less painful for your child when they 
when they have to in- undergo these sexual experiences. They never use the word rape, of course. Right. That's what it is. Yeah. So I think I think part of the uh, reason that many people are skeptical about um, retrieved memories is that many people are skeptical even about the idea that we would forget things of this nature, although of course most people don't remember childhood and some people even argue that you can't remember your childhood because the brain isn't wired for memories, but this is kind of a separate thing that the idea that something that was very traumatic would get um, shut away by amnesia barriers. I don't have any trouble believing that at all, of course, but but people do. Um, how, How do you explain that? I mean, how how would you explain that to somebody who just is skeptical of the whole idea that we would forget something that, that awful? Are you talking about forgetting childhood or forgetting current stuff? Uh, which, well... Because then my clients with DID yeah. can forget things that just happened. Yeah. Things that happened, you know, ten minutes ago. Or things that happened last night. Yeah, well, I think it's massively common. I mean, I think I do it all the time. Well, I'm probably not a good control because I, I think I probably was was abused but um, I think people just do generally forget things all the time and, and of course they don't notice because that's what forgetting is right so uh, but so we have this impression that we have a continuum of consciousness um, which is logical that we would because we wouldn't remember the gaps in our memory, right? We would just naturally cover over them. But then there's extreme cases where somebody actually has missing time. Yes. Well, people with sort of flagrant DID have missing time in the daytime, but people that, many of the cult abuse people, everything happens at night. And so they're missing a piece of the night, and the assumption is I was asleep. Yeah. That hasn't really happened. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very difficult thing to talk about or even think about because um, what, what, what we're talking about and trying to understand is the nature of identity itself and how we perceive ourselves and we perceive ourselves as a, as a single coherent identity um, that is consistent throughout our lives. And even I was saying to my wife yesterday, it's weird uh, that I think because psychology is becoming less and less... Um, uh, allowed into the conversation. I mean, people are less and less interested in psychology, and it's more and more about the surface. Um, and one of the things I notice is it's like we project back even into infancy, as if we had egos back then, as if we had these constructed identity selves that we take for granted now, all the way back then. I'm thinking the transgender movement, for example, and that two-year-olds can decide who they are. And so um, this is like. It's as though we can't perceive the things that you're talking about here are very, very difficult to perceive from a place of fragmented identity. That's right. When you have a fragmented identity, there's a lot you don't know. Those first clients of mine who were involved in the local Satanist group, they didn't know they were involved in it consciously during the day. Um, And then... One, and because they didn't know, of course, they couldn't tell me. And then the young man said to me one day, you know, I had a really funny experience. I woke up and found myself waiting at the gas station across from where I live uh, to be picked up at midnight. I don't know what that was about. And that was the beginning of his becoming aware that he was being taken off to the local group. 
um, people do not know that this is happening. Mm. And if we're dealing with an organized group, they make sure to do things at times when people will not know, and they'll give them alternate ex explanations of what happened. For example, one of the things they do with children is they have cult camp. When kids, normal kids go to a nice summer camp, um, cult kids go to cult camp, and at cult camp they get put through various kinds of tortures and trainings to train their separate identities. And then at the end they're maybe shown a film of real camp and told, this is you, this is where you spent these two weeks now. You go home to mommy and daddy and you had a wonderful time. Mm -hmm. And home they go. But they were at cult camp being tortured and trained. But they don't consciously know that with the part of them that lives everyday life. Right. So, I mean, but that, that brings up the question of how many seemingly normal kids' camps uh, are not that at all, doesn't it? Well, I think that may be, but these groups don't want to get a whole lot of children. They, they went through a phase, and this is when the false memory thing started up, way back in the late 80s and early 90s. They went through a phase where they were trying to abuse kids in daycare centers. Mm. And, uh, the, you know, there were a number of those cases, McMartin and so on, where kids came home to normal, loving families and started to tell their parents about the abuses because those kids were not sufficiently dissociative despite being that young because they had a real connection with their parents. Right. So even though some of, some of those people were convicted, others uh, got off or they were convicted and then it was overturned and said, oh, the therapist suggested it all to the kids. But then I think the groups withdrew and thought, okay, we're not going to abuse kids like this. We're just going to abuse our own kids. And so, for example, one client of mine who was quite young, she was, a, she was, a, she and the other cult kids, they all went to the same school or preschool, but they were taken out of the classroom, and the others remained in the classroom. But these ones were taken out of the classroom for their special training. Hmm. So. What you're talking about relates to intergenerational abuse, then, to children who are born into families that, uh, of children who, who, who were abused and grew up to, to, to raise a family. We're born in it. Yeah. Born into those families, it's multi-generational, and they're considered the property of the group. Hmm. Yeah, I was just going dead out there because I was <laughs> wondering about my own family uh, but also how you know how conscious or how unconscious this could be even by the perpetrators yes the perpetrators are also for the most part in altered states and the part of them that perpetrates may not know that one client of mine wrote a Mother's Day poem that was very touching I don't remember all the words but it was you know, M is for this, O is for this, T is for this, spelling out the word mother, and each one of those things was some terrible abuse, or abuse that her mother had done. And then the last line for the R was, Oh, mommy that I love, I wish that you would remember. Mm. Because her mother did not remember. Her everyday lover, mother did not remember doing any of these things. Right. But there are people, especially those at high levels in the organization, who are, they have a term for it, they call it conscious. And they are offered, if they're from the right kind of uh, family line, 
they are offered an opportunity when they get to a certain age, I think usually somewhere in their 30s, to become conscious. And if they become conscious, there's mind control procedures done on them so that their everyday life parts will be connected and joined with the parts that were perpetrators in the group and all of their hurt and tortured child parts are uh, locked away inside and so then they become conscious perpetrators and they may even think that what they're doing is good because they have no access to their own pain. Mm. And on what basis would they think it was good, that it was actually helping these children in some way to become more... Sometimes, yes, it was helping these children. Um, it's helping the children become part of the master race, if, if they happen to be believers in the master race, like a lot of the Nazi types are. Um, the Nazis are really big on mind control, and they're still around, as we can see many signs of that. And also... Um, they might, uh, if they actually believe the religion, then they think this is what Lucifer wants, and Lucifer runs the world. So, um, are you aware of um, something that came out in Vancouver a while ago, which is about, I don't know if it was more than one nightclub, but the children were being taken to the nightclub, and that high-level politicians and celebrities and whatnot were sexually having access to children? In Vancouver? Yeah. Both? Yeah. Great great that it was exposed I mean well it wasn't really exposed not in the sense that it no it wasn't it wasn't busted open it was just that there was awareness of it, it was it did get around and and it was somewhat I don't I don't actually know because I hear about it through my life but it's not something that that was that went to court or anything like that no but it, I mean there's certainly I've had clients talking about high-level politicians in in the US and the UK and uh, and Canada too, um, yeah. I've had several clients talking about high-level politicians using them sexually. That seems to be uh, one of the things that happens. Sometimes the politicians are part of the group. Sometimes the politicians are offered this, and then it's used to blackmail them into producing the kind of politics that the group wants to happen. Yeah, well, because there's. It's interesting, like, there's different areas of research um, that may all have to do with organized child abuse, but they're approaching it from a different angle. So on the one hand, you've got what you're, the research you're doing that relates to rituals and, and cults. On the other hand, you've got Laurie Handran's research into child pornography. On the other hand, you've got child trafficking, which is a reality. On the, on the other hand, you've got the these um, high-level political, uh, the use of... Um, children in order to compromise people in positions of power or who, who are going to be given power so that because they film all of it and then they have that as means of blackmail to keep that person completely in line. That's right, uh, Jason, there is all of that and actually what I talk about in my books is all of those things. Um, the term ritual abuse is used by many people as a generic term for all of those things. I prefer to use mind control as the generic term. But whatever you want to call it, that it's all of that. And these clients of mine have been used in all those ways. Mm. All these perpetrator groups, they use the same kids. And to what extent do you think that it's a way to create future leaders and uh, public figures who can be um, useful in terms of pushing the agendas that will facilitate these, these crimes? I do think that goes on. 
I don't know a lot about it personally. I know about it, some of that from a couple of clients who have uh, observed that, but, uh, but, you know, most of my clients have not been on that level where we're looking at uh, these leadership candidates and that kind of thing. Certainly one was. Mm-hmm. But I do, I do think it's used, yes. Well, I guess people, you, you should read Wendy Hoffman's books then, have you? I have, I have read them, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, Wendy was, was used in that way and was around various kinds of national and international leaders and leader trainees. So do you think the goal was to, to convert Wendy into a, a powerful public figure, but it didn't, the programming didn't take? Well, Wendy was not supposed to be a public figure, but she was used with public figures. Right. She was supposed to be a hidden figure. Right. In her position of power. Sorry, say it again. Rejected her position of power in the hidden world. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a very, it's a very large subject, and I mean, one of the, the things that I've um, been become more and more suspicious about is in terms of public figures that um, are culturally influential. So I think I told you I, because I met uh, Anne Diamond, who who was Leonard Cohen's lover for a time, and she she learned many things directly through him, but also through people who knew him that he was. He was involved with Ewan Cameron, and she's pretty sure that he was um, a subject of MK Ultra, and that then he became a handler later on, and that his role as a, a um, you know, musician and a folk hero was was part of his his uh, training in a sense. That would be very sad to think that Leonard was. I certainly love some of his music. <laughs> You know his song, Everybody Knows? Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, everybody Knows All This Stuff, that's right. But I know a lot as, A lot of it is much more blatant now, that there are many, many musicians, for example, and if you listen to the lyrics to their songs, or you watch the music videos and you see them using hand signals that, that look kind of bizarre to the rest of us, but convey messages to... Uh, people who are themselves survivors of these things. There's all kinds of stuff. There's one song I keep hearing on the radio about there's guns in my head and they won't go, spirits in my head and they won't go, and I'm thinking, oh man, that's uh, that's obviously meant to trigger survivors. And there's just so much of these this stuff very blatantly out there in the music world and in movies and TV shows too. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's been my impression. And again, there's a, there's a very sort of exaggerated and simplified, um, sensationalized version of this, as I'm sure you're familiar with, or maybe you're not, probably better if you're not really, but Illuminati in Hollywood and all this stuff that which, which um, yeah, makes out that all the Hollywood products and all the popular media is encoded with these this symbolic kind of... I don't they're all, all created with that, but once, the, once something is created, it will be used. So The Wizard of Oz, for example, is used a great deal in training and programming kids, but I'm sure that the woman who wrote the books in the first place had no such intent, knew nothing about it. Uh, sim- similarly, all the Disney fi- films. Now, some people say Disney himself was involved, but lots of the Disney films are lovely little stories, um, and... Uh, they, but they get used because one of the ways to deceive children is to drug them and show them a movie and say, this is you. 
And so all kinds of things are done with that. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's all under the control of uh, of um, the Illuminati or whichever group it is. Yeah, it is quite mysterious because with the Disney things, they they have found actual sexual imagery in those Disney films. Um, and the um, Shirley Temple, I don't know if you're familiar with some of that, um, like very overt um, pedophilia imagery in, in some Shirley Temple stuff. And no, you know, the thing is, Jason, I don't even read this stuff. What I've written about, if, this, if you're talking with me about books, is I have written about what I have learned from my clients and from other therapists about how this, way, this method of controlling the mind works on the children who are who are subjected to these abuses in order to make them sex slaves, spies, assassins, willing leaders um, who push the agenda, whatever it is. I, my focus is on the internal about what happens inside them, and I don't even read this stuff. I don't like reading about it. I don't like watching things about it. Um, I don't care about what the rest of the world says. Mm. Um, everything I say is kind of firsthand. Right. Well, I'm getting earache because I've got a microphone stuck in my <laughs> my ear this whole time. Um, Have and, we talked enough then? And we've definitely got plenty. I am, um, yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Jason. Yeah, thank you, Alison, for doing this. Is there anything else you're working on now, or is, is your are your writing days behind you? Uh, I am working on one more thing in this area, and then I uh, hope to write completely different sorts of things. Uh, like fluffy puppy dogs and... No, no, <laughs> like a memoir, like a book of nature parables about life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that does sound... Not, not stuff about ritual abuse yeah. control. Right, the light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, I'm hoping so, but that light's been there for a long time and the tunnel seems to be so long. Yeah. Yeah.